Welcome to the Confab. I'm Eric Felton. This is where the editors and writers of the Weekly Standard get together to talk about what's in the magazine, what's in the news, and whatever else may be on our minds. Why has Virginia gone from being a reliably Republican state to a bluish one? Fred Barnes is here to tell us. He's also going to walk us through the politics of the House vote to revise Obamacare. Then Michael Warren's coming by. He's got the cover story in the magazine this week, all about the man who's got Donald Trump's ear. And then there's a terrific new book out, The Fascinating History of the Federal Government's Plans for Surviving a Nuclear Doomsday. The book is called Raven Rock, and author Garrett Graff is going to be here in the hardened confab bunker to tell us Washington's elaborate strategies for getting lawmakers and bureaucrats to safety while the rest of us get ready for the zombie apocalypse. All that next on The Confab. To get The Confab rolling, we're joined by Mr. Fred Barnes, executive editor of The Weekly Standard. Fred, how are you doing? I'm doing well and glad to be here. Good. You know, Fred, this is episode... 53 of the confab we've done one every week for the last year and mm. now we're starting a new year of the mm. confab and well, I'm, I'm honored to be here i'm glad to have you here uh, getting the new year as it were going so this is a, another way of, of of setting year by year is by the confab calendar <laughs> indeed <laughs> so fred you've lived in virginia your whole life did you ever think that it would be a democratic state again? Well, I saw it change back in the 60s when, remember, the old conservative segregationist uh, Democrats who had run the state since the Civil War uh, began to fade uh, because of uh, desegregation and, and so on. They just become outdated and vanish very quickly. And Republicans began a big surge. And I thought, well... This is going to be a Republican state. Republicans won presidentially in the state. They elected governors and senators. There was a while when they kind of ran the board. And they ran the board. By 2001, they had a governor, and there's only one of those, a lieutenant governor, of course, and an attorney general. And they had both senators. They had, I believe, eight of the 11 U.S. House members. Um, they w- had a large majority in the in the state uh, general assembly in the House and a narrow mar- amount, uh, majority in the Senate. I mean, it was everything. They had. I mean, they'd swept. <laughs> they had. Uh, they had swept everything up. And and though Republicans still do all right in Virginia, they can do with the right candidate. With the right candidates. Things, you know, demographically overall mm. have not been favoring Republicans. What's what's happened in Virginia? Well, you look particularly, I write about Fairfax County, where some people, like former Governor Jim Gilmore, says, I asked him, I said, do you, to what do you ascribe Virginia becoming a Democratic state or at least a leaning Democratic state? And he said one word, Fairfax, Fairfax County. You know, it has uh, something like 1.2 million people, uh, which is double what it was, uh, uh, say, when Reagan was elected in 1980. And, of course, he won Fairfax County, but it has changed completely. It's now uh, uh, the white population is uh, way down from what it was. There's 20 percent of Fairfax County residents are are Asians, at least by ethnicity and uh, and race and so on. And 16 percent are Hispanics and they're and and blacks are up to they're about 10 percent. And 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 when you change the composition of a population, 
it changes the way they vote. And and they vote. And now Fairfax County and, and the same phenomenon has happened in other parts of the state. They vote uh, Democratic. And it's not just demographics, though, that mm-hmm. uh, that make a difference. It is the nature of the workforce in the bedroom community of mm-hmm. uh, communities of Washington yeah. is that they tend to work for the federal government <laughs> or uh, or companies that service the federal government. Indeed. And uh, if, as you say in your article this week in the Weekly Standard, um, when Donald Trump talks about draining the swamp he's he's that's a direct threat to yeah. the livelihoods yeah. of the people living in Fairfax County and also in Loudoun County yeah uh, sure in Arlington that. Alexandria Prince William I mean the whole northern Virginia is uh, is the swamp and they like it <laughs> <laughs> so happy swamp dwellers yes so the other big news this week is the um, revival of the effort to get repeal and replacement of Obamacare. Mm-hmm. Uh, what turned things around? There was a vote Thursday mm-hmm. where the uh, House bill actually passed and mm-hmm. is moving on to the Senate. Mm-hmm. Well, a couple things happened. Uh, one, there was tremendous embarrassment uh, by Republicans when they couldn't get the votes for four. Remember uh, a month or so ago? And and, uh, and it was, was an embarrassment not only for lawmakers. It was a huge embarrassment for Donald Trump who oh, mm-hmm. had prefaced mm-hmm. uh, much of his candidacy on an ability to get things done mm-hmm. in a business-like fashion. And he failed entirely, as did House Speaker uh, Paul Ryan. And uh, it was a big embarrassment. And how did the media respond and Democrats respond? The Trump-Republican effort uh, and its uh, agenda is gone. It's over. He can't get anything through Congress. It's uh, This is uh, the end of Trumpism, as, as basically we never knew it. But uh, the... Uh, uh, and... And that actually had an an impact on some of the dissenters, particularly the conservative ones, uh, in the beginning, the ones who helped block uh, a vote from having uh, happened at all a month ago, because they realized that the momentum uh, from a Trump Republican effort uh, won, and and by then, of course, Trump had embraced basically a a conservative agenda on economics and and most domestic policies, uh, their agenda as well, uh, and they realized what a mistake they'd make. Do you do you think that the fairly conservative and pro House Freedom Caucus take on tax reform that? Um, Trump rolled out a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. that uh, that that helped convince House Republican conservatives to go with the effort on health care so that they can get to mm. the the tax reform that yeah. is yeah I think that helped and uh, uh, but I think it was mainly uh, many of them concluding. Uh, for a particular reason when they went home these conservatives went home they found out that. A lot of the people, their base, didn't like what they'd done. They thought they should have looked. Hey, wait a minute. This is repeal and replace of Obamacare. Vote for it, you dope. After seven years of saying yeah. they would repeal and replace yeah. Obamacare, yeah. it seems that voters were actually listening to what they were saying. <laughs> yeah, indeed. And, of course, these were uh, these were Republicans who voted uh, for an even tougher uh, anti-Obamacare uh, bill in, in 2016, which went up all, all the way to Barack Obama. And, of course, he vetoed it. But now that there's a real chance of enacting it, uh, they balked for some reason. Uh, that did not go over very well. Now, the state of play, though, really has changed on health care yep. from, from that bill, mm-hmm. which would have really outright repealed 
um, Obamacare. Well, not not to get it through reconciliation in the in the Senate, but anyway, that's complicated, and and I accept your uh, premise. The, the the premise being that the bill that we're looking at from the House at this point is not one that really repeals Obamacare, but rather mm-hmm. it uh, it adjusts and. Mm-hmm. You, the, if you wanted to be pejorative about it, you might say fiddles with Obamacare yeah, yeah, rather yeah, than yeah. eliminating mm-hmm. it. Well, uh, I agree with that. But uh, on the other hand, if this is the only way Republicans can get Obamacare at least in major part repealed, then they're smart to do it. And they did, at least in the House. So the the, the flashpoint seems to be um, pre-existing conditions. Right. And uh, that was a big problem with um, the function of Obamacare as mm-hmm. well, because it made it that people, because pre-existing conditions were not a, uh, could not keep you from getting insurance, mm-hmm. it took away any incentive to get insurance in the first mm-hmm. place. You could always just come along with a, a pre-existing condition when you needed care yeah. and sign up then. Yeah. Well, Republicans tried to uh, uh, do something about that uh, at their peril, and it turned out that many uh, more moderate Republicans uh, rebelled against it. And of course, all the Democrats were climbing all over it and I'm sure intend to make that a huge issue uh, for the next few months and also in the 2018 midterm election. Uh, but, you know, there's no there's no perfect cure for that problem. You can have these high risk pools and you can uh, uh, say that uh, even if you let your insurance lapse, you can still come back, but you may have to pay a little more. Uh, that that didn't go over well, and uh, we'll see how what they wound up with works if it ever goes into law, and that is that, uh, that um, one, it relies heavily on the high-risk pools, and, uh, and more than anything else, to take these people with, with previous conditions that they come in with out of the marketplace, uh, because if they're in the marketplace, what it means is since they drive up the cost so much of uh, for health insurance that everybody else has to pay more for theirs. So what do you think they're thinking over in the Senate? Are Senate Republicans happy and glad that they'll have the opportunity to do something on health care and to have their say now? Or would they have rather seen this um, uh, die in the House and not have fallen in their laps? <laughs> you know, uh, I don't think their appetites have been entirely whetted <laughs> over this. But, you know, you know how in, in life you do have uh, uh, conflicts in your motives. Uh, on the one hand, they're thinking, uh, what a mess. Do we want to have to deal with this? On the other hand, they're thinking, well, you know, you know, we did say we were going to get rid of Obamacare. We we can we may have to do it. And if they send it over here, well, then we'll we'll have to do something. Have have senators learned anything from what happened in the House? Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I think what they've learned is uh, we didn't like the first bill that we that was never voted on, and we're not crazy about this one, uh, but we can change it a lot. The House, for all of its you know sort of long effort on trying to get something done came up with a compromise and rushed it through at the mm-hmm. last second mm-hmm. um, without people really being able to see what was going on with it, without there being a Congressional Budget Office scoring of mm-hmm. the uh, financial effect yeah. on the government. Mm-hmm. Would you predict at this point, prediction, mm-hmm. um, that if there is a final bill of some sort that comes out of a Senate House compromise, mm-hmm. that it will be part of a process where people will be able to assess and think it through 
or is it going to be something that is going to have to, when it's be finally finalized, be rushed through before anybody can actually see what's in it? Uh, you mean as Democrats did? As Democrats uh, had done. Back in, uh, in 2009. Is it just uh, the nature of health care bills mm-hmm. that uh, they can't withstand scrutiny? They have mm-hmm. to be shoved through one way or another. Well, Republicans particularly can't stand scrutiny on, on health care. It is not their issue. It is a democratic issue. They're always going to promise more. They're always going to want to spend more. They're always going to want to uh, uh, do things, uh, you know, insure for people if they need uh, uh, hair uh, replacement or something. Uh, you know, they want to cover everything, and it's going to sound better. You know, you'll get everything, and you won't it's, have to pay a dime. Plug, it's the plug the amendment. <laughs> the plug amendment. So uh, Republicans are at a disadvantage in the beginning, and uh, and. The people and, and Democrats are counting on the fact that people will forget if they haven't already how bad Obamacare was, and they can uh, and they can pretend like it is. Oh, those were those wonderful days when we had Obamacare, and look what these Republicans are doing now. I think that's going to be part of their argument. Frankly, I understand. You know, twenty Republicans didn't vote for this in the House. Almost all of them were moderates. Now, why did they do that? Well, they're going to run for re-election, and they don't want, and they and they know they'll be accused of, uh, of at least their party of, of uh, trying to kill Obamacare, and they can say, well, we didn't. Why would they do this? Because they want to keep their seats. I think that's honorable. You know what I thought was not honorable it was the first time around on this bill where these conservatives, particularly with the Freedom Caucus, found something small in the in the measure or in, in the bill or found something that could never get through uh, this uh, uh, reconciliation process and arrive in the Senate. And they have voted against it and they were against it for that reason. That's self-indulgence. Now, I don't mind if if, if members are self-indulgent. Indulgent just to save their lives, their political lives. I think that's more worthy than some uh, than what the conservatives did the first time around. All right, well, we're going to see how this plays out over the long haul. Fred Barnes, executive editor of the Weekly Standard. Thanks for joining us on the new year of the Confab. <laughs> the new year that begins in May. <laughs> Now we're happy to welcome into the Confab studio Mr. Michael Warren, senior writer of the Weekly Standard, White House correspondent, all-around good guy. Michael, how you doing? Now two out of those uh, three, I guess. <laughs> Your pick. Yeah, Your exactly. Pick. Uh, I'm, I'm doing great. Uh, thanks for having me, Eric. So, you know, the uh, the Wall Street Journal back in the days of the Bill Clinton presidency, they kept running these editorials that were rather ominously titled, Who is Vince Foster? Uh, <laughs> You know, who is Hubble? Right. You know, and um, and so in the age of Trump, the question similarly that one would ask is, who is Jared Kushner? Yes, and well, I've I've tried to answer that question, uh, Eric. It's funny you bring it up. Uh, uh, in my cover story for for the new issue of the Weekly Standard, um, Jared Kushner, he is senior advisor to the president. He happens to be the husband of Ivanka Trump, uh, Donald Trump's daughter. Uh, and I argue, and I, I think my reporting bears this out, uh, Jared Kushner is the most powerful person in the White House besides the president himself. He's got the president's ear. He's got more influence with the president than really anybody there. And uh, I think people should know more about the guy who uh, has the ear of the president. Now, this isn't just a nepotistic hire. The guy is accomplished. 
he has accomplished for being 36 years old and uh, the son of a billionaire uh, real estate uh, businessman, uh, Jared Kushner. If I were the son of a billionaire real estate investor, <laughs> I might be accomplished too. Exactly. Uh, but but I, I think it is interesting. He is, and anybody you talk to who's come across him in his business in the business world uh, speaks very highly of him as well. Uh, this this isn't sort of uh, you know a rich kid who who was handed uh, things, although he certainly was handed a lot of things. Um, he uh, really ran his father's uh, company, his father's New Jersey-based apartment and real estate company, after his father was uh, was sentenced to uh, a couple years in prison for tax evasion and some other things, minor details. Now, now we won't take anything to, we won't extrapolate from that at all to the possibility that he could be running things. No, no, no. <laughs> no, of course not. Well, the interesting, I didn't even get into this in, in the piece, but the federal prosecutor who put Charles Kushner, Jared's father, in jail was none other than future New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. So that's a little wrinkle in this whole uh, saga here. But we'll, we'll, we'll leave that aside for now. Um, that but, didn't have anything to do with uh, Chris Christie getting kicked to the curb. I can't say, Eric. You know, I just, and there was uh, a lot of traffic by that <laughs> curb next to the bridge. Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, Jared Kushner, 36 years old, uh, he was uh, buying and selling real estate uh, when he was a student at Harvard, um, was a, uh, a graduate of New York University, law degree and a business degree. Uh, he was running uh, this this major player in the New York area real estate uh, market, big big market for real estate. Also, the owner of the New York Observer, a sort of quirky newspaper that's now a a uh, sort of website only. Anyway, so a businessman and sort of brought in. Uh, to the Trump campaign uh, as as somebody, yes, the the son-in-law of Donald Trump, but also somebody who was very much seen as uh, somebody who could sort of shake up organizations, think about new th- new ways of doing things. Um, he's credited in a lot of ways with sort of building the social media uh, aspect of the Trump campaign. And, and now he's doing that kind of shaking up, uh, people tell me, in the White House. Now, people thought, though, for a while that the real shaking up of a Trump White House would come from Steve Bannon, who likes to really shake things up. It's a different kind of shaking up altogether that Jared Kushner brings, and uh, and it would be seen as being rather at odds with the sort of shaking up that Steve Bannon might bring to the to the table. That's right. And and if you were to sort of make this into uh, a soap opera uh, in the West Wing, which I would never do, I, 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 I hasten to add. But if you were going to, you would actually say, it would have to be a Latin American one, <laughs> a telenovela, a te- telenovela, really. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, if you were going to do that, uh, you would say that the sort of two power centers, the, 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 the people who are most at odds uh, are uh, Jared Kushner and Steve Bannon. And this was sort of played out this this argument. They had a lot of arguments, a lot of debates over the last couple of months, uh, played out anonymously through, you know, uh, sources, anonymous sources and, and newspapers and websites and those sorts of things. Um, Bannon, you know, this sort of populist economic nationalist charging that Jared Kushner uh, was a Democrat who which you, he's donated to Democrats. He's not registered currently with any party uh, Democrat bringing in all these Goldman Sachs types into the administration and really um, uh, sort of globalists, globalists, exactly. And in fact, was apparently quoted uh, by one uh, anonymous source, not mine, uh, as calling Jared Kushner a globalist and a cuck, which is short for cuck conservative. It's sort of a pejorative term 
uh, for sellouts yeah. and establishment and it's types. It's the kind of language one expects from Stephen Colbert. <laughs> exactly, not Steve Bannon, uh, or at least not well, somebody in the White House. But, you know, if I were in a White House and I were striving for power in a White mm. House, and um, I would not want to be having to walk over the cherished son-in-law of the president to get where I was going. That's probably a, um, a, a losing bet. And I think Steve Bannon lost that bet. And the pushback from Kushner um, uh, was, you know, sort of in public uh, sources were saying that, uh, that, you know, the president sort of stepped in and said, hey, you guys cut all this sort of bickering out and figure it out among yourselves, uh, seeming to sort of come down neutrally. Uh, but uh, it was very clear uh, in the New York Post interview and some other interviews that the president did uh, that he sort of downplayed Steve Bannon's role in the campaign, said, oh, I didn't said, really know Steve. I like Steve. I like Steve, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Damning with faint praise, uh, and uh, uh, which for Donald Trump is, is, is really saying something. Um, and, and really sort of signaled, I think, uh, and you can see some of the, the, the moves that have been done in the last month or so, Steve Bannon sort of losing some clout and influence within the White House, you can see which side the president went on, uh, uh, you know, sort of landed on and tipped the scales toward. Uh, and I think that just sort of underscores the point of my piece, which is that uh, Jared Kushner uh, is unfireable in many ways. He is uh, sort of, uh, a, he's not going anywhere. He's uh, valued more than really any other aid. And I, I got to underscore this. It's It's not simply because he's Ivanka's husband, that he's the son-in-law. In in a way, Donald Trump puts a greater value on Jared's advice because uh, for the fact that he's not going anywhere, that he doesn't uh, have really any other, in in Donald Trump's view, any other reason to be there except to serve his father-in-law and ultimately serve his family's He's stuck with the Trump brand. That's right. And so it's he he has an incentive to make sure that the Trump brand doesn't become toxic in a way that um, Steve Bannon, uh, it's a brand of convenience for Steve Bannon. And if if he has to walk away from toxic wreckage, then who cares? I think if I were sort of being an armchair psychologist about this in Donald Trump's head, that's sort of how he figures this. not particular to Steve Bannon and really not even. Uh, in a uh, sort of thinking negatively about any other aides, more of a, a recognition of that, uh, and this you can see this throughout Donald Trump's career, that uh, blood is thicker than water and uh, family means more uh, and is more important and can be more loyal than just about anybody else. And that's why in this effort for there to be a special prosecutor with regard to the Russia stuff, um, the the name it's uh, that's been floated is Tiffany Trump. For, for <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Michael Warren, senior writer at the Weekly Standard, White House correspondent. Thanks for joining us on the Confab. Thanks, Eric. Doomsday aficionados will recognize that as the uh, as the bomber music in Stanley Kubrick's Doctor Strangelove and how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. 
which is appropriate enough because we have an author with us of a new book about doomsday planning, Raven Rock, the story of the U.S. government's secret plan to save itself while the rest of us die by Garrett Graff. Garrett, how you doing? I'm good. Uplifting now, title. Uplifting title. Absolutely. Now, you are the man to ask, is there a mineshaft gap? For all intents and purposes, the U.S. actually spent years worrying about w- whether there was, in fact, a mineshaft gap. And one of the very strange moments uh, that I chronicle in this book is the effort in the 1950s by cave explorers and the Boy Scouts to go out <laughs> and map the caves of America with the expectation that that is where the American population would relocate during a nuclear strike. Peace through spelunking. Peace through spelunking. So now, you know, you are one of the essential Washingtonians, uh, uh, having been editor of Washingtonian magazine by definition, but uh, a man about town. And uh, yet halfway through writing this book about doomsday preparation, you packed up from Washington and moved to Vermont. I'm, I'm wondering if we should be worried, those of us who are left behind. <laughs> Uh, it was purely coincidental, I promise, except that, uh, yes, Washington should be very, very worried. And and this is sort of part of what has been interesting about the way that these plans and this doomsday preparations, which the government technically calls the continuity of government planning, that these continuity very, of government plans... comforting. Exactly. Continuity is a good thing. It is. It, and it's something that we are all in favor of. Uh, but ever since 9-11, a very big focus of these continuity of government plans has been the idea that Washington could disappear in any given day, leaving almost the entire rest of the United States intact. And how does the U.S. government begin to reconstitute itself if everyone within a three or five mile radius of Washington uh, is destroyed? And part of that is getting some people to Raven Rock. Raven Rock being the title of the book. What is Raven Rock? Raven Rock is the bunker outside uh, Camp David in Pennsylvania, just over the Pennsylvania-Maryland line, that would serve as the relocation site for the Pentagon and the U.S. military. And it's a massive facility, a hollowed-out mountain, uh, Raven Rock Mountain, obviously, and would hold uh, upwards of 5,000 people. It's a facility that got its start in the late 1940s and early 1950s and then was actually expanded dramatically in the years after 9-11 and today uh, is undergoing all sorts of various communications and engineering upgrades uh, as well as, uh, and this is our our Pentagon uh, and where we should be very proud, winning environmental design awards. It's lead certified doomsday planning. planning. (laughs) That makes me feel so good. Because, of course, once the nuclear winter sets in, we'll, we'll have to worry about the LEED certification. Does that mean that, that you won't be able to get sort of hot water from the sink in the bathroom because it's LEED certified? They, they have these massive underground reservoirs uh, inside Raven Rock, uh, both for engineering purposes and for drinking water purposes. And, and it's sort of this very funny uh, complex. There are several of these scattered around Washington. Raven Rock is the primary one for the Pentagon, and then there's another one in Virginia called Mount Weather that's for the president and the executive branch. But they have, they're their own cities. They have 
fire departments, police departments, and even restaurants and bars within them. Bars. Tell me about the bars. The the bar uh, at uh, Mount Weather is called the Balloon Shed Lounge, and it's a uh, it, it's a nod to where that facility got its start, which was as a National Weather Service observatory that used to send weather balloons skyward uh, into uh, into the atmosphere. And it's, was it's good the, to have a, a bar where it's the name is derived from getting high as a kite. Exactly. And, and there is sort of this funny theme of alcohol that runs through many of these uh, doomsday plans where the congressional bunker, which, uh, as you know, Eric, was at the Greenbrier Resort in West Virginia, kept a, uh, a, a an actual stock of bourbon during the Cold War for members of Congress that they swore was just to help wean any alcoholic congressman who may show up after doomsday. Right, because after doomsday, you need alcohol less than you did in your everyday life. should have just been... We've got a big stock of booze because everybody will be dead except for those in the bunker, and at which point there won't be anything left to do but booze. Indeed. So so how were people supposed to get to these bunkers in the first place? So the, the amazing thing is that these plans are actually all still in existence today. And there are landing zones all over Washington uh, where helicopters will swoop down uh, with just a few minutes' notice and evacuate uh, officials uh, who are pre-designated. Uh, and the landing zones range from the Pentagon to the ellipse by the White House to the track and field, uh, athletic fields at American University. And these uh, these people would be shuttled off in these helicopters to these bunkers, but also to, and, and I was, was fascinated by this, during the Cold War, this whole mass of other command centers. You know, there were naval ships at sea that was, would serve as uh, floating command posts for the president. There were armored trains. There were actually in the 1980s uh, and up to the present day, there are mobile tractor trailer convoys that would set off across the country ready to serve as a command post for nuclear war. So you can just imagine in the moments before the the Soviet uh, or now Russian or North Korean missiles hit, all of these truckers heading out onto the open road across the United States. And you say there's something called a doomsday plane. What's the doomsday plane? So the doomsday plane, it, it's actually four of them. There are four of these 747s that are kept today at Offutt Air Force Base in Omaha, Nebraska. And they are kept, uh, one of them is kept on alert 24 hours a day ready to evacuate the president and basically allow him to command nuclear war from the sky. And this was, uh, if they couldn't get the president to Raven Rock or to Mount Weather during the Cold War, the goal was to get him aboard these planes, uh, which were called the Night Watch planes. Now, these planes, if they're in Nebraska, how is the president supposed to get on them? So the president is supposed to get uh, aboard Air Force, or sorry, uh, get aboard Marine One the somewhere, helicopter. the helicopter, and then the helicopter will fly somewhere and rendezvous with one of these Night Watch planes. And then the president will have basically three days up in the air where he can command a nuclear war. Uh, before the plane will have to land. Now, what kind of drills do they do to say, you know, the president's in the Oval Office, 
we have to get him aboard Air Force One and in the, in the air to be getting to then the doomsday plane. So during the Cold War, one of these doomsday night watch planes was actually kept on alert at Andrews Air Force Base. So they would run these drills uh, throughout the, you know, from the 1960s on up to, uh, you know, the 1990s, known as silver dollar drills. That was the code name for them, where, you know, an alarm would go off at the White House and someone playing the president would go out to the South Lawn, wait for a helicopter to land, evacuate the president, take him to uh, to Andrews Air Force Base, and then the plane would take off immediately. And the goal was actually to do that in just 15 minutes, which was the length of time, the minimum length of time that we would have warning-wise for a missile strike on Washington. And we, we really would have 15 minutes if a Soviet boomer submarine came up off the East Coast and launched its uh, payload? So you would actually have uh, slightly less than 15 minutes under those circumstances. But one of the things I was actually fascinated by in my research was that for most of the Cold War, the expectation of American war planners was actually that the Soviets had smuggled atomic bombs into their embassy in Washington and the UN consulate in New York. That was a mighty big pouch, diplomatic mail pouch. It, well, and and that was part of what uh, what was uh, the fear of this is people think of these diplomatic pouches that come into a country uh, and aren't available to be inspected as just a little briefcase, but they can actually be any size. And so you would see during the Cold War these Russians bringing in you know these car sized packages that they would say were diplomatic pouches. Uh, and John F. Kennedy uh, confided to a journalist in the 1960s uh, that his his belief and what he had been told by the Pentagon was that about three blocks north of the White House in the uh, then the Soviet embassy, now the Russian ambassador's residence here in Washington, there was an atomic bomb in the attic. Is is that the building that's right here on 16th Street? It, yes, you Eric would never even know when the bomb went off. I could look out my window here. The confab window looks out on the back of the uh, Soviet, former Soviet, uh, Russian resident ambassador's residence. So, yep. and and uh, so maybe still in the attic there. And, and, and of course, today the Soviet ambassador is radioactive for a different reason in Washington. <laughs> so, but this this would suggest that it would be a very bad idea to choose now as the moment to open a North Korean embassy in in Washington. Or at least you would want to limit the size of the diplomatic pouches that they could be bringing in. So how was everybody else supposed to get to wherever they were supposed to be going? I mean, you know, did, did the congressional staff, did they have a helicopter to get them? Would they even know where to go to get on the helicopter? Uh, so this was one of the, the f- uh, again, funny stories. I, I mean, these plans were conceived in this deadly serious uh, attempt to plan for Armageddon during the Cold War. But when you look at them with this sort of uh, light of history upon them, many of these are actually, I think, quite silly stories to tell today. And one of them is that actually, despite this congressional bunker being built at the Greenbrier in West Virginia, members of Congress were not actually told where their bunker was. And the idea was that after a nuclear attack, uh, they were congressmen and senators were supposed to find their local FBI field office. 
where the FBI agents would be waiting with these sealed envelopes that were kept as part of the FBI's war plans at each field office across the country. And in these sealed letters would be driving directions uh, to get to the Greenbrier bunker so in West have, Virginia. So you, if, you were, if you were Barry Goldwater, you'd have to get to Arizona and get to the, the FBI field office in Phoenix to get the envelope that would tell you to give you driving directions to West Virginia. Yeah. If, if Congress was in session in Washington, there was going to be a special train that was going to whisk members of Congress uh, actually straight from Union Station on to uh, the Greenbrier, which runs right by the railroad tracks uh, in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia. Uh, but if if it was during congressional recess, you would wait until the bombs had exploded. So continuity then, of government is relying on Amtrak. This it, is truly frightening. It, yes, it, it was. Uh, it, a, a lot of these plans seem, uh, to put it mildly, uh, optimistic. How much of government was supposed to survive? Um, I take it we'd have. Um, somebody playing president, whether it was the president himself or a designated survivor, and and uh, and those rules got awfully complicated. Um, but uh, you know, would we have uh, the IRS? I assume I assume that uh, really the last function of government to go would be the IRS. And, and every federal agency had some role after a nuclear attack. The National Park Service was actually going to be who set up the refugee camps in national parks around the country because the idea was the national parks were unlikely to be targeted by nuclear bombs. Well, and, you know, actually park rangers being about the most capable um, and likable people in the federal government, that's the one hopeful sign. Yep. And the post office would be the agency that was in charge of basically figuring out who was still alive in the United States because the post office is who keeps track of where people live and would be in charge of trying to figure out, you know, who had ended up in refugee camps and where to follow the mail. And then... That's the the Kevin Costner movie that no one saw. That turns out (laughs) to have had a lot more truth than any of us would have imagined. (laughs) And then, of course, as, as you mentioned, you do have the IRS and the IRS and the U.S. Treasury put a tremendous amount of effort in the Cold War into thinking through exactly how to levy taxes uh, in the wake of a nuclear attack. And you'll be very pleased to know that they decided that they would not tax you on what your wealth or property was prior to the nuclear attack. So if my house has been obliterated by a nuclear blast... You would get a tax break. <laughs> there's, there's good news in, the, in doomsday planning after all. Garrett Graff, author of Raven Rock. Get it at your local bookstore or on Amazon while you can still read it before the bomb hits. Garrett, thanks so much for joining us on the Confab. My pleasure, That's it for the Confab this week. Be sure to tune in to the Confab every week. Just go to iTunes for a free subscription or go to our website, weeklystandard.com. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Eric Felton. 
catch you next time.